If you have your Bibles with you, you can be finding Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We've been looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians. And uh, today I want to begin chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. On Sunday, the 7th of December in 1941, some of you will recognize the date as the day the, the Japanese Navy flew in and to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and bombed what they thought would be all of our aircraft carriers. Fortunately, they, a lot of them were out to sea but they flew in and in a preemptive attack in order to keep the United States out of World War II, they thought would secure their security. They uh, dropped bombs preemptively. And uh, a movie was made, I think it was back in 1970s, called Tora, Tora, Tora. Uh, Japanese for tiger, tiger, tiger. Uh, which meant that as a tiger leaps on its prey unexpectedly, so they were able to do that with uh, the ships in the harbor at Pearl Harbor. The Navy chief at that time, Yamamoto, uh, was very enthusiastic, very excited. But toward the end of the war, he was quoted as saying concerning Pearl Harbor, he said, We only awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. A sleeping giant. I've always thought the church was like that. It has all this incredible potential, it's explosive. And we, what we have seen in Ephesians is something that would lead us to believe that the chapter, the very first chapter of Ephesians, verse 22, puts Christ as the head of the body and says that he is above, uh, all things are under his feet as head over the body and, it, and his position is for the church. All the authority that he has is for us. It's not for himself. Look, Jesus had all authority before he came to earth. But in becoming a man and becoming the head of his body, he embraced humanity for us, for the church, to protect and provide and nurture the church. So based on our union with Christ, we have this, we're like a sleeping giant. And so when I, when I open up this chapter 4 and I find that Paul begins by saying, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this, then I, I'm not surprised to, that he wants to stir the church. He wants to awaken the giant. A statistic that I have read several times, and I read it again this week, this comes from Aubrey Malfer's. Uh, book, he says that 80 to 85% of all churches 
are plateaued, that means they're comfortable and asleep, or are actually dying, declining. 80 to 85% of all the 400,000 churches in America are, are either plateaued or declining. And then that where there is growth, it is often the result not of baptisms, new converts, but of people just joining from other churches, following the next new thing. You know, okay, here's something popular. Uh, they got it going on over there, so we'll, we'll start going over there for a while. Uh, and one pastor that I read uh, in Florida had over 100 additions one year. 90% of them came from other churches. He was so excited when he saw how many new people they had had, and then he realized we are building our church by tearing down other churches. And then he became depressed because he knew that is not what God sent us to do, to build church. And, and we don't have to because you know why? There's a whole lot more lost people in Genesee County than there are church members. <laughs> So our target, Luke 19.10, he says, I have come to seek and to save not members from other churches, but the lost. That's our target audience. And that's who we're to go after, and that's who we're to, to target um, are people who are not members and not Christians. But they have some valid complaints about the church. The church is subject to criticism and a lot of times it's just, it's fair. Here's three big ones for, before we get to our passage this morning, but uh, one, one criticism I hear is that uh, there's too much fussing and fighting in a local church. I don't want to get involved because you get too close, you get burned. Too many, too many people. Uh, and I've I've been visiting before, you know, and uh, go up, walk up on the porch, start to knock on the door, and on the inside, because they don't know I'm there yet, on the inside I hear the man and wife screaming at each other, and I'm like, hmm, because <laughs> I don't know whether to go in on this or not, and it gets louder, and I have actually turned around and just left, not anybody that's here, by the way. Not anybody's here. But people who are fighting at each other repels others. So if you, the best way to lose people is just getting a church fight. So I hear that. Well, they, get, they can't get along with each other. Another criticism is that they don't want to change. It's like they call it, a lot of times they say you're boring. But what they mean is that we're often, uh, it's not an adventure, it's not, it's, they don't, they're not challenged, they're, there's no growth, there's no risk, there's no faith, there's no vision. That churches don't want to change, you go back 10 years later, it's the same way it was when you went, when you were there 10 years earlier. And a third uh, criticism is they're full of hypocrites. Uh, people don't live up to 
what they know is right. A story that I heard years ago is that to boost attendance one Sunday, this pastor brought in the guy who had a horse that could count, and he took him up on the platform and said, how, how many people were crucified with Jesus? And uh, sure enough, he counted out two. He hit, the paw, hit his paw on the platform twice. Then the guy said, and said to the horse, how many uh, disciples did Jesus have? And sure enough, the horse pawed out 12 times he hit, hit on the platform. And then the guy said, and how many hypocrites are in this church? And the horse started dancing on all fours. <laughs> Y'all never heard that before? That's an oldie. Too many hypocrites in the church. But this, what you have in Ephesians chapter 4 is Paul addressing each of these three. These like are, are three uh, common complaints of the church or problems with the church uh, throughout history. Um, let's, let's put these up here and then we'll come back to our passage. But, but they are conflict... And the solution to conflict is unity. That is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He, he, takes, he shows you, here is Christian unity. This is what replaces the conflict of a church. This is what is supposed to be and how, how you can fix conflict. Then the second one is apathy or inertia. Nobody cares. You're not moving. There's no adventure to it. That's verses 7 through 16. And you know what the solution to an unchanging, boring church is? Leadership. And that's what you get in chapter 4 because he says, after he talks about the ascended Christ and how he gave gifts to men, and these gifts were, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. These are people who God gives you to move you off dead center and challenge you out of your comfort zone. And, and leadership is God's solution to apathy and inertia. And so a leader is contradicting himself when he says, I can't get the people to do anything. Leader, that is our job to get them to inspire, challenge, exemplify, model, initiate, and motivate them and mobilize them to move forward. So that if there's no movement, that goes to the leader's feet. And then the third is hypocrisy. And that's in chapter 4, verse 17, and goes all the way through 521. And this section just deals with the church in its daily ethical behavior. Chapter 4, uh, verse 25, talks about lying to people. Verse 27 talks about, or 28 talks about stealing from people. Uh, Verse 29 talks about gossip. Uh, verse 31 is bitterness and wrath. Christians can be guilty of all of these. And so from there through chapter 5, he just says, look, let's raise, let's get a new normal. And, and here's just a quick um, snapshot of in the future for Ephesians 5. After he goes through the ethics of it, through chapter 5, verse 22, the solution is holiness and repentance. Then he, he says, and it applies this holy life 
splashes over basically into relationships. The marriage relationship, parent-child relationship, the servant-master relationship, and then he closes the whole thing with a list of, with how to deal with spiritual warfare in chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Because he says, you put all this together, but don't forget, out there are evil spirits, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In dealing with relationships, don't forget that the big enemy is not the person in flesh and blood in front of you, but the person behind them, talking to them, stirring up the trouble. So he deals with spiritual warfare at the end. That'll be the direction we'll be going in. We'll take some time off here and there for this and that, but, but basically uh, that's where we're headed. Now, the solution to conflict is in our unity. So let's look at chapter 4 and just uh, go switch back with me, if you would, to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I mean, I'm going to just read it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you're called in one hope that belongs to your calling. Verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all, through all, and in you all. This unity that is the solution to a church's conflict is the apostle writes about it here as kind of an, an appeal for a full realignment. I, I got some new tires on my car this week. And they, the uh, old tires had about eighty or 90,000 miles on them. And, but and I noticed that on one side, it looked like there was still decent tread, but on one side it was just as smooth as it could be. And uh, he came into me after, he, after they put the tires on. He said, uh, Mr. Redner, you're going to need an alignment. And he said, this is, what you're, this is what this looks like. And he showed me how out of, aligned, out of alignment my car was. And I mean, I had tires going this way and tires going straight ahead. And I'm like, man, how, no wonder this thing would pull to the left. It would park itself. No wonder. And he showed me this, the picture. You know, they run this stuff off. It shows you right there how far out of alignment that it is. And, I mean, they looked fine. But you could, ah, oh, there was just a little bit. But when you really, it's the way a church is. Superficially. But when you probe and measure and check it out, a lot of times you'll find conflict. You've got people with different agendas. They want to go one direction. You've got, you got people with preferences. We like a certain kind of music or we like a certain type of ministry and emphasis and they want to go a certain direction. And you've got people who are traditionalist and they want to go a certain direction. And pretty soon you've got an alignment problem. And what happens when you're out of alignment? 
it wears the tires out prematurely. I found that out. He said, if you put these new tires on her, if you don't get them aligned, they'll wear out in half, half the time. And that's what happens to people. Conflict in a church just wears people out. Amen? If y'all, has anybody been in a church conflict before? I don't think we've had one here. Uh, but I've been in them. And they just drain you. And, and, and going to church is like walking on the porch and starting to knock on the door and you hear the conflict and you're like, hmm, maybe not today. I'll wait on Easter Sunday on that one. Paul brings to us here this passage to bring us into alignment. And, and let me point out some things he does to bring us into alignment. In verse 1, he points out our privilege. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've, with which you've been called. You've got this incredible calling from God. God spoke to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Why are you here today? It's because the Lord has spoke to you. At some point in your life, God spoke to you. And he said, follow me. And when you followed him, you found yourself to be in this great stream of, of elect humanity. All the way back to Israel in the Old Testament, God called Noah out of this violent, wicked, corrupt society, saved him and his family, and then out of Noah's sons, he called Abraham, Isaac, out of Abraham was Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of that came the, these were the chosen elect people of the Old Testament. And that flows over into the New Testament into the Jesus Christ, the seed of David, who was from Abraham. And we have been called into this incredible stream of chosen humanity. A, a whole different society. We're like that, is it the Gulf Stream that down in the, uh, in the Pacific is like a, a warm stream of water surrounded by the cold ocean? But there is a warm stream called the Gulf Stream. The temperature is totally different in this. It, it, no, I mean, I don't know why it's different. But this is the way that in this coldness of humanity, the lostness of humanity, you have been called out of that. And you are different. And on the basis of that privilege, he says, keep in mind who you are. Now, then he goes to the distinction you have as a Christian. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. Humility, when he says all humility, he's using a word there that's used nowhere else in all of literature outside the Apostle Paul. That word is used in the, in the Greek language of the first century nowhere. He seems to have made it up. And he's come in with this word which means to be very meek, and submissive 
and which the pagan world would have said, if you're like that in the world, you will be run over. And the Apostle Paul brings this in and he says, this is the way that we, that we are to live our life because God will exalt us. I, I deal with and I work with people who's, who get mad at their wives or mad at their husbands and they want to assert themselves and insist on their rights. You ever want to... I just... You know, this is not right. I have been wronged and I insist on my rights. But I am glad Jesus did not insist on being self-exalting, self-promoting, self-asserting. They, pl- they plucked out his beard. They spit in his face. They beat his back black and blue. And in his death and crucifixion, he set us free. I am glad he didn't stand up and call 10,000 angels and say, I don't have to take this. I don't need this anymore. But he he brought in a humility and an attitude that was different from anything in the pagan world. It's interesting that the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 15, 17, was when he started out was so meek and humble when they said you're the king in Israel where'd he go and somebody said he's over there and they found him hiding in the baggage now that was Saul in the Old Testament the first king in Israel but then he got so self he got so proud and arrogant and finally the prophet Samuel came to him in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and he said, When you once were little in your own sight, God made you the king. But now you're self-exalted, so God's removing you. See, the, the humility of this verse counts on the, and factors in God's activity on your behalf. So that you don't always have to run around defending everything about yourself. There is a God. He will defend us. He will help us. He will rescue us. He will promote us. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says that, that promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, but from God who sets up one and puts down another. And in His time, He does it. So we come before God humbly and we trust in Him. The, the other thing that you have here is this, the nature of Christianity, the nature of our faith. Look at verse 4. Everything is one. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to that call, and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Let me just comment on these. There's seven of these unities here. There's one body. That means there's only one church. I mean, there's all kinds of denominations and tags and labels, but there's only one church because there's only one head. There's one body. There's one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's not a bunch of spirits 
unless they're demons. But when it comes to God, there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope. What's one hope? It means there's one future. There's all kind of views on what the future is. There's only one hope. And that is that God's going to fix it. Christ is going to intervene. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a final judgment. There's one hope. There's not a hundred different hopes. And then he says, verse 5, there's only one Lord. One boss. And there's one faith. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear people say uh, refer to Buddhism or Hinduism and Islam as, and Christianity and all of these faiths. Uh-uh. There's only one faith. Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam is unbelief in Jesus Christ. It's not a, they're not faiths. It's not faith unless it's faith in Christ and faith in, in the Father. Because, and you, you may think that I'm exclusivistic here, but I am quoting to you from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, there is one Lord and there is only one faith. And instead of, instead of reacting with, to people who say that, say, well, I will agree with this, that the New Testament does teach there's only one faith. Because that's what it says, that's what the Apostle gives us here. And he gives one baptism. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What is that? That's when you're baptized at the field house by the pastor, me. And it's the only baptism that gets you to heaven. Now y'all know, see, that's not right, is it? What is this baptism? I'll tell you something, and I'm a Baptist, but I don't even think this is water baptism. I think this is baptism that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he says we are all baptized by the Spirit into one body that is into Jesus Christ, and that takes place at the moment of our conversion. We're joined to Christ. That's the baptism of which water baptism is the outward expression. So that is because... If you have been baptized in water, but not baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ, that is joined to Jesus Christ, guess what? You, all, you're, all you got was wet. You didn't get saved. <laughs> but if you got joined to Christ, you got saved. And hopefully, you also will get baptized at some point in the future. But here is what he says. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then in verse 6, there is one God. And Father of all, who is over all. He's through all and in all. Paul is pointing out that the God who is over all, the God, the only God who is, the creator, there's only one creator God. He not only has created us, but he sustains us. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he who made the world with his word, upholds the world with the same word. He upholds it. He sustains it. He puts the breath in your body while you're sitting here this morning. He keeps the molecules of this desk or of this building. He keeps those molecules together so, so that they are protons, electrons, neutrons, are all 
moving around and, and adhering to each other so they don't fly out in every direction and this roof collapse on us or your chair collapse on you. God holds all things together all the time. He's over all, through all, and in us all. There's a sense in which God Himself permeates every single part of creation and the created. And particularly so for Christians. Now, the point Paul is making here is that our, the whole Christian faith is characterized by oneness. So we cannot, as a church, be characterized by fragmentation and disunity. So he says that the solution to conflict is that you remember your privilege. Don't fuss about minor issues. And he says, Rem- remember that, that the Christ has come and was humble and that our calling is different. We are to have all humility. We're a different breed and species of people. And remember that our whole Christian faith, everything is one. One God, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. Everything is one about us. So we should not make a big deal out of the denominational distinctions and boundaries that draw that are drawn between us today. They're not saving issues. And Paul is appealing here to a church that it be free from conflicts. Know what to fight over. When I, uh, this is probably 15 years ago, Bud was, uh, maybe uh, yeah, 20 years ago, we were in, I think it was Six Flags over Texas, and um, they had this slide that circled around. It was long, and it was high, and, and it would shoot you out into the air and then you land in the water. So the girls who were older, they went, they just, and, and Bud, he was like three or four, and he was watching his older sisters come down that slide and they'd shoot out, and he kept getting after me. He said, Dad, I want to do that. No, man, I... Come on, Dad, you can go with me. I knew that was coming, and... So finally, I gave in, and I said, okay, come on. So you have to climb this ladder. So I had, I had him in one arm, and I was climbing the ladder, and we got to the top and got on the little platform. I positioned my glasses, and um, we started down the slide. I thought, okay, this is not bad. And... I don't know what happened, but I don't remember the girls going this fast. (laughs) But I mean, man, I was picking up speed, and we were, about the time I got my balance, then we'd go around a curve, and I'd go around another curve, and I started losing Bud. I lost my glasses. Bud was sitting up here, and I started losing my breeches. I had to choose. (laughs) It's either my son or my trunks. I chose my trunks. (laughs) 
I let him go and grab my pants. <laughs> I never did find my glasses. I had to, we drove all the way back from Texas without my, me having my glasses on. I did find my son. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, and you know, at about the time that I thought, okay, I've lost my glasses, I lost my son, I saved my trunks, and then whoosh, up into the air. Whoo! <laughs> <laughs> Wham! Oh my goodness! And uh, so they helped me out. Jan laughing at me, and the girls were laughing. And and I remember looking. I got them, the the people to come in, try to help me find my glasses. Never could find them. So, but I was thinking of this the other day. I, and one of the reasons I was thinking of it is because I got a phone call last night. This guy was t so completely chaotic in his life. And a lot of people are just like I was, shooting off of that slide. They've lost things. They've lost their dignity. They've lost their children. They've lost... It's chaotic. They're a mess. You know what they need? They need a safe place to come. Folks, church has got to be a safe place. Can't come into church having sin destroyed your life and find the church in disarray. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, you're calling. Look at who you are. You're different. Don't act like the world. And remember, everything about you is one. If people are going to come and they're going to get their lives right, you, this has got to be a safe, holy place. And that's what God wants.